my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I've been striving to set up this interview with sea angler, journalist and angling consultant Mike Thrussell for quite some time, trying to find a suitable time slot and repeatedly failing due to a wide variety of other calls on your time. Got to be honest, there's quite a lot of call on my time these days, has been for a long time now. First and foremost, my consultancy work with Pure Fishing. I'm working on several brands, including Penn, Abu, Shakespeare, uh, and also now Hardy Greys, well, Greys anyway, and I do some other stuff as well for the company. The other thing I do, of course, is I still write for Sea Fishing Magazine. It's a new magazine. I do quite a lot of the core copy for that, and it's, it literally is those two put together is more than a full-time job. And, of course, I still like the fish when I get the chance. Not as much as I used to, but I do try to get out at least once a week, and that really takes up the full gist of my time. Nice to hear you're so busy, even if it does mean little in the way of free time for other things. Contrary to public opinion, not many of the big names on the angling scene can actually make a full-time living out of fishing. Now you and I go back a very long way. We've all started writing at a similar time, and first met up at Aberystwyth, if my memory serves me well, around the start of the 1980s. But listening to what you said just a few moments ago, your life then took a very different course to mine. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you couldn't really script this, but the genuine truth is that I was probably only about three and a half years old, as I remember it. At least my dad, he, he's gone now, but my dad used to tell me this story too, which is why it's stuck in my head. My old dad used to build racing rally cars for a living. And this guy came into the garage one day and was um, watching this car being built. And at the end of the day, he turned around to my dad and said, you've got a young fella, haven't you? He said, here, take him these, you might like them. In all honesty, it was a, a book, it was Mr. Crabtree Goes Fishing, I kid you not. And also an Alvey sidecast reel. Well, the Alvey sidecast reel was damn near as big as I was at the time. But that was where it really started to kick in, because none of my family previous to, to that had ever taken any interest in fishing at all. My grandfather shot for England, believe it or not, but he never actually fished. At least I'm, I'm not aware that he fished. I remember thumbing through that book, um, thumbing through it and thumbing through it and thumbing through it. And when it came to holidays, we used to come down to Wales, and I remember badgering the old man to get me a fishing rod, which he did one day. And again, you couldn't script it, but it was on the Malthick Estuary, which is where I live now. Bearing in mind, at that time, I lived in Sheffield. And I actually caught a flounder the very first time I went fishing. And I do think I owe that flounder an awful lot, because I didn't catch anything for the next three or four years, as I remember it. Seriously, did not. I think if I hadn't have caught... Maybe I wouldn't have carried on fishing, but certainly that flounder, I think, sort of put the nail in place. And then I, I sort of really developed my interest in fishing, probably, in all honesty, to the detriment of my uh, my schoolwork. I lived and breathed fishing. And I remember I used to spend all my pocket money. I used to buy every single fishing magazine I could afford. I went through the Trout and Salmons, Sea Fishing Magazine, you name it, I bought them. And I think it was probably... Like quite a few people of my age, Sea Fishing Magazine was probably the um, key to opening a whole new world of sea fishing. I remember the likes of uh, Brian Harris and Ian Gillespie and many, many more, particularly John Darling, who was one of my personal heroes, um, reading the stuff that they caught and how they went about their fishing. And it made me think more and more technically about my fishing. I didn't catch a lot of fish as a young fella. I didn't know enough, but I kept reading and reading and reading. And over time, you could see that your catches were getting better. Your tackle was getting better. And then I sort of had a little bit of a pause in my early teens. 
I got really involved in rally cars and uh, I really enjoyed my rallying. But it was quite an expensive hobby. And then another turn of fortune, I went to live in West Australia for five years, did some fishing out there. Then obviously when I came back, I decided to target one specific fish, which was bass. And that sort of made me think a lot more strategically again about my fishing. I, I really did put everything together. But I have to sort of, from that, the way I got into writing was quite strange too, because um, I had no intentions of writing, though I'd always enjoyed writing. And I suppose as a young fella, it was one of my dreams to become a, a professional writer of some sort. But the fishing got so intense with me, and I was very lucky I caught some really big bass, that I... Um, started to send in one or two catch reports to one of the magazines, which was Sea Fishing Magazine. The editor at the time was a very, very good guy, Bob Hawkes, and he encouraged me an awful lot. And he rang me up one day and he said, really like you to do a feature. And I said, well, I don't really think I've got a feature in me, but he said, look, I'd really like you to do a feature. And to be honest with you, I didn't do anything about it. And he rang me up about a month later. He said, look, I really want this feature. Anyway, I sat down and I wrote a feature called An Hour at the Bar, Just Time for a Bass. And he printed it and he rang me up and he said, I want 12 in a row. And that's really how I got into writing. I didn't expect to make a living at it. It just progressed from there. They came to me when they wanted other things writing and I just sort of developed my writing from that. What really helped me was that I was an all-rounder, a genuine all-rounder. I wasn't just a shore fisherman, I wasn't just a bass fisherman. I got into species, I got into big fish. I enjoyed boat fishing, I even did fly fishing. You name it, I did it. And I think having that that background of so many different aspects of fishing really, really helped me to write. Also, I was drawing on all that knowledge from those incredible writers like John Darling and Brian Harris that I'd soaked up in those magazines some 15, 20 years before. And that's really how um, I've come to do what I've done. And then I suppose I was very lucky when, way back in um, late 1990, I was asked by um, Shakespeare if I'd join them as a consultant. And I have to be honest, I didn't have a clue what a consultant did. I, I, I was totally green. But I, I went there and um, I started to learn and learn about rods properly. And um, I, obviously because of my fishing, I understood what I thought was a good rod and how some rods could be made better. And I stayed there for the um, best part of a couple of years, and then I was very fortunate. I met a guy called Rob Wyatt, who actually asked me to go to Leader, and he was a real catalyst in my career because he really encouraged me to really put what I'd learned into rods, and between us, it was a, an equal partnership, it was a team effort, but we developed some really good rods, and uh, all the time I was learning. And I stayed with Leader for about 11 and a half years, give or take. And then I was very fortunate. I was offered a, a consultancy with Fox International and worked alongside another great product man, Max Cottis. And Max also taught me an awful lot. Incredible guy. I was there for a couple of years. I was very happy at Fox. But um, Rob Wyatt got a, a job as a product manager at Shakespeare. And over six months, he really, really put pressure on me to go back and work with him. And... Uh, Eventually, I capitulated, and they always say never go back. This was to go back to Shakespeare, who at the time, nobody knew, but I was made aware of it, that they were about to buy Penn UK. This happened, and one of my first jobs was not just to help Rob revamp the Shakespeare range at the time, but also to revamp the Penn range, completely revamp it. Little did we know that within a couple of years, Pure Fishing would come along and buy both companies, and I've stayed there ever since, and uh, that's why I'm working on the brands that I'm working on now. 
One thing I would like to add is that going back to when I was a young fella, the reels and rods that I really craved, I didn't have a lot of money, I couldn't always afford them, but um, I craved Abu reels and pen reels, and the very first good quality reel I ever bought was an Abu 6000C back in 1968. I remember my dad at the time was not on great money, but um, I paid 14 quid for this reel, 6000C, having saved up for a long, long time, having had numerous little jobs to get the money together, and he thought I was mad. But I still have that reel. And for me to be able to work on brands like Penn and Abu has really been a, an incredible privilege. I'd like, if I may, to pick out and further develop a couple of the strands you've already mentioned there. Let's start with your book on poor beagle sharks. Incredibly, based on today's track record, at the time of writing it, Cardigan Bay in West Wales had a massive reputation as a poor beagle fishing mecca. Like I said, I was an all-round angler. I'm fascinated by by all fish, but I became particularly interested in sharks, and um, I was very fortunate. I met a, a skipper, he, he's no longer a skipper now, but a guy called John Mitchell who ran a boat called the Anne Jay out of Aberiron. And John was a little bit of a pioneer. He wanted to try things that nobody else had really done. And although poor beagle sharks and even blue sharks had been caught inside my local waters of Cardigan Bay right since the 30s and 40s and probably before that, nobody was really attacking it with rod and line properly. One or two people had had a few solitary forays out to 30, 40 miles band and had some good fish, but nobody was really attacking the inshore water. But John and I sort of teamed up and um, did some experimental fishing and started to pick up quite a lot of poor beagles. We struggled to find the big fish at first. We had an awful lot of what we call pups up to about 100, the occasional bigger fish up to about 130, 140, but we seemed to struggle to find the big fish, though we were getting the numbers. And then I um, sort of teamed up with um, a group of lads from, um, from Nottingham and also a, a childhood friend, Charlie Bartlett, who's still a famous skipper in these waters working out of Aberdubie. And um, in 1989, on July the 4th, I was really lucky. I had the first fish of any species, a poor beagle of 205 pounds, the first fish of any, any species over 200 pounds. And that really sort of opened the door a little bit to a little bit more poor beagle fishing. People started to take a lot more interest in it once they knew that big fish were there. Unfortunately, the commercial guys got wind of the amount of poor beagles that were available to us in Cardigan Bay. Unfortunately, it was a very small window as well, and the fish were very predictable, turning up within two or three days at the same time every year. But they found them actually down off Lundy Island when they were migrating north, and um, they hit them very hard and unfortunately took their numbers down to extremely low levels. And so this was in the early 90s, and uh, 20 years, 25 years nearly later, we're still struggling to get the numbers up, though they are beginning to show again. Moving on now, let's explore the media work in a little more depth. You was for many years a regular contributor to Total Sea Fishing, which I personally did not think would stand the test of time, competing head-on in its non-specialist slot against the market leader, which still is Sea Angler. But it has. When it comes to writing, I've never really been a journeyman. Although I'm freelance, I've tried to be loyal to the magazines that I've worked for. Sea Fishing Magazine, I worked for pretty much uh, the original Sea Fishing Magazine that came out in the 80s. I worked for pretty much from its inception until its closure. And then I worked for um, two or three other magazines. I used to submit quite a bit of work, not features, but catch reports and stuff, to Sea Angler. And then I, I also started to um, write about 18 years ago for Total Sea Fishing Magazine. 
and that union lasted for about 17 years up until only a few months ago in uh, 2014 when I moved ship and moved to a new magazine, funny enough, called Seafishing Magazine. To work for a magazine for 17 years was quite incredible. It's an awful lot of features, covered some incredible ground, met some great people, learnt an awful lot, watched the fishing industry and also fishing as a sport change remarkably in that time and was in a fortunate position to be able to record much of it in the features that I did. One thing that was said was that, um, and has been said a lot in the last 20 years, is that magazines probably won't stand the test of time. I think Total Sea Fishing was a prime example. I think it did stand the test of time. It stood up against some very, very strong competitors, more than held its own, went down its own road. And I think that's probably the structure of a magazine. What a lot of people forget is a magazine depends on many, many things. But its writers, I'm biased, I know, but its writers are very important. It's them that keep it at the forefront. That's often forgotten. Looking forward, I think uh, magazines will always be with us. I don't think it, they'll be the same format as they are now. They may not even be monthly magazines, but I do think they will be with us, certainly for the foreseeable future, for lots of reasons. Simple reasons being that people do like to pick up a hard copy and read it. I also think that they're essential for the industry, for the fishing tackle industry, because without magazines... What people forget is that a lot of smaller retail businesses, it's their best form of advertising to the public, other than footfall through their own shop door. I think a lot of people forget that, and it's quite a selfish thing to do as well, because everybody is doing their best to earn a living. I think, you know, the advertising side of it is very important for those smaller businesses. This move from total sea fishing, what's the difference then between the new mag and where you were before? I'm sure people ask, you know, why would you want to move from a magazine after 17 years? I have to be honest, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done, particularly as a very good friend of mine became the new editor there. But I was conscious that as a writer, I try to do new things. People say that fishing's fishing and, you, you know, after 12 months you're repeating yourself. I don't agree with that at all. I certainly have tried to be different. Yeah, a lot of the structure of, of some of the things we do, whether it's conga fishing or bass fishing, is the same. But techniques change, you've only got to look at how plugging has come on. The new aspect of light rock fishing, LRF fishing, there's new things all the time. As a writer, I think it's important to try to push yourself a little bit. And I wanted to, to go down a new avenue and to try some new things, which I'm doing now. I've actually changed. It's very hard if you don't write for a living to understand, but quite often it's very difficult to change your style of writing. Some people may not even totally detect that change, but if you can change your style, you can get yourself a new lease of life, and I think that comes through in your words, and to me that is very important. And presumably, a change of title helps facilitate that change of writing style. Nobody wants two or three magazines to be the same. And if you actually look at them from a common sense point of view, three or four magazines are not the same. They may have similar content, but they are not the same because they're written by people who've experienced maybe the same subject, but they will look at it in a different way. And sometimes when you're working on a magazine, you have a format to work to. Quite often, I'm very lucky, I'm pretty much left on my own to work out my own format. And it, that enables me to explore new routes. And I'm always trying to look at a different way to put over an old point, but with new angles to it. And I, what I try to do as well is I don't just try to fill columns. 
Because of my own fishing and my interest in fishing, I'm always trying new things. Some are successful, some are not. And as people who've read my work will know, I'm not frightened to say when I failed. Because quite often, it's the failures that have helped me crack a problem and then catch fish that I wouldn't otherwise have caught. So it's a, a bit of a complex answer. But when you're working for a magazine, it also helps your own fishing because all the time you're developing and you're looking for new angles. And I think that does come out in your own writing. We mentioned earlier the poor beagle fishing. As I've said, Cardigan Bay was once a prolific producer, so much so that it spawned your book, First Run Shark, specifically on that subject, plus another single species offering on bass. Because I was so intensely interested in fishing as a whole, but my interest sort of went with the sharks, and I've already mentioned my deep interest in bass, my character is that I will analyse things. I don't impose it on other people, I do this for me, but I try to do things to the best of my ability, good or bad. And that's how I approached my first my bass fishing. And I said I was very lucky, I caught some really good fish in a lot of them. But I also used the same approach with the sharks. And it was because of my writing in the magazines that um, it spawned the idea of actually writing books. I, I wanted to write books as a kid, but didn't know what sort of books. I suppose looking back, it was an inevitable consequence of of my normal writing that I would go into writing books. I quite enjoy the little bit of research that I did with the books. I was quite lucky that most of it was sat in my head. But inevitably, when you write books, there is research. Again, a lot of people may not believe this, but anybody who's in the fishing industry will realise that writing a fishing book, for the majority of people, there is no money involved. You do it because you want to write the book. And whether people believe me or not is up to them. But I genuinely wrote the book because I wanted to write it but I wanted to write it because I wanted to pass on what I was learning. Because a lot of what I was learning, I hadn't actually seen in other books. And that's not saying that I was doing something incredibly different than some of the other people who were writing books at the time about sharks, but I was experiencing things differently. Maybe because of my approach, I don't know. But I was very conscious of making sure that that information got out, because one of the main motivations for me writing ever since the start, which is now over 30 years ago, and I'm told some... 3,000 or more articles published, I still get a kick, a real kick, out of passing on information that lets other anglers who are maybe not so experienced catch fish. I think that's really important. A lot of people just think we do it because it's a job. Most of us don't do it because of a job, because most people can't earn a living at fishing. But it's really important to us that we pass on the information so that other people can experience what we've experienced. I think one of the problems with writing fishing books is always, I've just alluded to it, is that there's a money issue. No matter who you are or what you are, inevitably you have to earn a living. Whether you do that by laying bricks or, or making candles or you do it by pushing a pen, it's immaterial, it's still a way of earning a living to exist. Unfortunately, there hasn't been the money in fishing books really. Maybe one or two of the cart books, but certainly not in sea fishing books. It's never been a money spinning option. But one of the reasons that a lot of books, particularly 20, 25 years ago, when I wrote my two books on Bass and Shark, one of the problems with the book clubs at the time, what used to happen was that you used to have a cover price, for argument's sake, say £15, but the book clubs used to sell them for £2.50 or £3. You only got your 7% or 10%, whatever it was, of the actual selling price, not of the cover price. And that made life very difficult for you to warrant the time that you put in to get any money back. That problem has now gone away, but of course now you've got the internet. A lot of people are self-publishing books, 
it's only my opinion, and I don't want to become too harsh, but I do think it's degraded the professionalism of writing. I'm all for people being able to pass on their experiences, but I do think it has degraded the quality of writing. I also think the information that's given out sometimes is not as good or as accurate as it could be. I'm sure I'll probably get slated for that, but that's my personal opinion. I think in future, people will still crave hardback books for lots of reasons. I think first and foremost, they are a reference, a permanent reference on a shelf. Some of the internet stuff quickly gets shelved. I think that's also going to be an influence on the future publication of books. I may, in the not-too-distant future, sit down and and write books. I've personally looked at self-publishing. At the moment, I don't think it's for me. I would prefer to use a proper company and try to produce a, a professional account of my life experiences or my thoughts or whatever it may be at the time. But I do believe that books will stay around, and I do think that quality fishing books will start to make a stand and people, like I said, will crave them again. What about the live-to-camera work you do? I was very lucky back in the early 90s to work on um, Screaming Reels uh, on a few episodes with Nick Fisher. And I have to be honest, when I did it, I was extremely nervous. I'd never been on live camera before. But slowly but surely, you get used to it. Whether you ever become good at it or not, I don't know. But um, I've done quite a bit. What helped me quite a lot was that I was approached by Nick and his uh, producer to be an occasional and then regular contributor to Nick Fisher's Dirty Tackle radio program on Radio 5 Live. And I did that. I can't remember for exactly how long, a couple of three years And then um, when that finished, the producer and I, um, a lady called Helen Stiles, who was an excellent producer, suggested that she would like to carry on with a a new format programme. And um, basically what happened was we ended up working with Nick Hancock, the comedian, who did a fantastic job, and we called it Fish on Five. And I did that for four years. So I was quite used to being with the mic anyway and uh, used to contribute on a programme basis in studio but also do um, some outside broadcasting, which I really enjoyed and uh, covered some really interesting topics, both fishing and conservation. I did a few other sort of single videos as well in that time, but I also got invited to do a slot on um, a BBC programme about Great White Sharks, Great Whites, Great Britain, presented by Steve Leonard. At that particular time, they wanted to get a live shark on the show, and um, I actually went to Southern Ireland and caught a blue shark. And I did that program and really enjoyed that. Other TV workers included quite a few things, including one or two reviews of shows on TV. But also now I'm very lucky, uh, I'm an occasional guest on Tightlines on the Sky. And I really enjoy that. Great people. Covers a, a tremendous amount of subjects. I really enjoy talking to Keith Arthur, who presents the show, a real angler who asks real angling questions. And um, it, it's a terrific show and I enjoy doing it. And let's not forget the website, World Sea Fishing. Well, one of the things I did, rightly or wrongly, was um, call my son the same name as me, Mike Thistle. So, Mike Thistle Jr., he takes the credit for WorldSeaFishing.com, which is, um, as far as we're told, one of the biggest sea fishing websites in the whole of Europe. Um, it's got a huge forum base, and a lot of subscribed users. It covers a tremendous amount of subject It's got features on there, i.e. magazine features. It's got blogs, live blogs, as well as the variety of forum boards covering the whole of the UK and beyond. 
it's quite an incredible story, really, because um, Mike's 31 now, but when he came to me as a 15, 16-year-old and said at the time, uh, he said, you know, we really ought to have our own website. And I said, hmm, a lot more work, haven't really got the time, can't see the point, don't think it's going to go anywhere. But there again, I'm a dinosaur. He uh, sort of waited a few months after that and then pretty much came to me and said, nope, you're wrong, I'm going to do my own thing. I think it's where things are going to go. And really the long and, and short of it is that it's become extremely successful. It's grown from a, a website that he called um, See All The Angles To Become, WorldSeaFishing.com. I think most people in the UK within fishing and fishing industry know about WorldSeaFishing.com and it's a very, very strong product. Like me, you will have witnessed firsthand a lot of change on the sea angling scene over the years. Technically, it's improved at many levels, but arguably it's had to to keep pace with declining fish stocks. With me being so deeply involved in the fishing tackle industry and the design of products, I'm acutely aware that um, things have had to change because of inevitably declining fish stocks. When we talk about declining fish stocks, we're talking about fewer fish, but also smaller fish. When I was first starting in product development, one of the best-selling rods was either the 30-pound class or the 50-pound class. You would even sell 50 to 80-pound class rods, whereas now the standard line class that we sell most of is 12 class and 20 class. But also we're finding that bass rods have become lighter, the new interest in plug fishing for bass, the rods are very light, they're very fast, they're very slim in diameter, because the average bass, for most people, is a fish between two and, if they're lucky, four pounds. And I think that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to build and design fishing tackle that actually equates to the fish we're trying to catch. There's still the power there and the ability to beat big fish, but we're trying to make sure that the angler catches the average fish but enjoys that fish to the maximum amount of fun he possibly can. Also, I think it's technique as well. To try to catch fish often, particularly from the shore, for instance, though this applies just as much to the boat nowadays, you often have to fish quite light. And I think it's quite interesting how rigs have developed. Rigs now are quite refined, and often the difference between making a decent catch and making no catch at all is being able to drop down in the diameters of your rig body and your hook snood and the size and weight of your hook and the size of your bait and get the presentation absolutely right. Quite often, very big fish take small baits, and that's something that we've learned much more over the last 25 years. I think also distance casting. Although it first really became in the vogue in the late 60s with Dungeness when there were some huge big catches of cod, and it was the cod that motivated the long-distance casting regimes, what's happened now is that because of the, the amount of fish in front of us being smaller, and because they have more ground to work, if you like, individually to feed on. The fish are more well spread. They're still concentrated in certain marks, but the majority of the time you've got to be able to cast a long way sometimes to find the fish. And this is also why we've refined fishing tackle. You look at some of the European imports, some of the very long European rods, what those have done. I'm not particularly fond of fishing them. I find them a little bit... Um, I don't know, a little bit antiquated, to be honest with you. But what they do is they allow you, with the very basic skills of casting, i.e. a simple overhead cast, to reach maximum range. And that's very important, because without that range, quite often a lot of people wouldn't catch fish. It's really important that 
tackle is designed for the angler with catching fish in mind. Quite often some tackle is brought out for the simple reason that it's purely to sell it, but my attitude to tackle development is it has to be fit for purpose, more than fit for purpose, and it also has to suit the angler for what he's trying to catch. I think that's very important. When it comes to declining fish stocks, it'll be an argument that, frankly, in my time, my lifetime, I don't think will ever be um, ever be sorted out. Anglers have been telling the authorities for many years that too many fish were being taken by commercial fishing. I'm not saying that anglers have been lily white because they haven't. But when you look at what the amount of fish a charter boat takes in a year compared to a commercial trawler or bean trawlers, it's quite frightening. In fact, quite recently on a trip to Ireland, I was talking to an ex-commercial fisherman who's now, and for the last 10 years, has been an excellent charter skipper. And he said in simple terms to me, he's seen less fish wasted in 10 years of charter fishing than he did in a single day of commercial fishing. I think that speaks volumes, and it's quite worrying. I don't really see stocks increasing as such, generally, in my lifetime. I think they will probably stay as they are. They may even decline a little more. I don't see that there's been enough done to safeguard future fish stocks. I think we're still taking far too many small fish. It's a very difficult situation. I think also one thing that's always still talked about is the sea angling license. Now, I do a lot of freshwater fishing, so I'm happy to buy a fishing license. A lot of freshwater fishermen say to me, well, yeah, you you sea fishermen won't buy a license. It's not that we won't buy a license. What it is is that at the moment, no government could justify a license for a declining product. That's what we mustn't forget. If we could find a way where money from any license was put back into fish stocks and we could see a tangible benefit, it's not going to happen, but if we could see a tangible benefit, I think a lot more sea anglers would be in favour of a sea angling licence. But at the moment, on the basis that we have, I'm not. Can I throw in a couple of quick supplementaries here? First off, what did you make of the Hugh Fernley Whittingstall TV series and his opinions both on conserving marine resources and commercial discards? I think when it comes to commercial fishing and discards, I mean, there are, hopefully in the coming years, going to be something done and put in place properly that will see discards reduced or eliminated. I think it stands to reason. I know quite a lot of commercial fishermen, and I have to say they're great lads. The majority are great lads, but they're working within the bounds of what the government and and Europe tells them to. What concerns me is that what quite a few of them don't understand is that if you put it into shopkeeping terms... They're selling stock off the shelf, but they're not replacing it. And I think until we get to the stage that we are taking out what we can sustainably take out, but putting back more than enough to safeguard and grow future stocks, I think we're on a slippery road to nowhere. I really can't put it any better than that. A lot of people won't agree with me, but that's the way I see it. What then if all commercial fishing had to be done by rod and line only, as in parts of Scandinavia? Asda, for example, currently make a very big deal about the cod, haddock and mackerel all being sourced that way. I think when it comes to whether we should be fishing commercially with nets or whether we should be commercially fishing only with rod and line, I think a lot of people would jump on the bandwagon and say go rod and line. Personally, I think you have to look at it from a common sense point of view. People need to eat. And I don't think we could sustain 
I, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't think we would be able to sustain the nation's needs for fish on the, on the plate purely fishing rod and line. It would be nice to think so because it is sustainable. I don't think we could. I think we need to find a way of commercially fishing, like I said, that guarantees we get enough food on the plates, but equally guarantees that enough fish go back in to more than cover what's needed to sustain and grow fish stocks. Well, I have already interviewed commercial fishermen who fish rod and line exclusively and make a very good living, and they reckon that is the future. People who can earn a living out of rod and line, I think, is it's great. But I think there's a lot of fish. Put it this way. I mean, you look at how quickly certain stocks on wrecks can be taken out, and that applies to rod and line too. You've only got to look back 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when wreck fishing was just starting to come to the vogue. Quite quickly, over two or three years, those guys saw a decline in fish stocks on the wrecks. I think even rod and line has to be sensibly managed if it's done commercially. And aren't TV chefs like Fernley Whittingstall themselves in part responsible for some of the pressure on certain fish by promoting the eating of species we previously hadn't bothered with, some of which are scarce anyway and don't have the luxury of the protection of a total allowable catch? I think TV chefs that um, push fish that probably weren't always in vogue, particularly gurnards come to mind, pollock come to mind, I think it's quite worrying and I've said so in articles in the past. I think what tends to happen is that you tend to get a glut of fishing on those particular species, which certainly in some areas can severely decimate numbers. I think that needs to be watched. I do think that chefs need to... I've got a lot of time for people like, like Rick Stein. I, I mean, excellent programs, and obviously got a great love for fish. But I do think that sometimes they need to just take a step back and just think, hang on a minute, what exact damage are we doing here? I think that's really important to bear in mind. And as a result of commercial pressure, we now have the growth of specialist pursuits, such as light rock fishing, the deliberate targeting of small specimens and mini-species, because there's bugger-all outs left to satisfy many shore anglers' aspirations. I think we can see from the changing aspects of sea fishing, for instance, the interest in, in light line fishing for big fish offshore, it's to maximise sport, but that also applies to smaller fish too, because the smaller fish are the norm, the big fish are not. I think also LRF fishing, which we've already discussed, where you're using very, very light tackle off piers, breakwaters, rock marks, etc., to catch very small fish such as shannies and gold sinny wrasse and cork wing wrasse. I think it's partly spawned by people not catching a lot of fish and they want to catch something. There's a positive side to that though as well particularly with LRF, it's an easy way to get youngsters into fishing. You know, somebody who's got a son or a daughter who wants to take them fishing, ten years ago they wouldn't have thought of taking them onto piers and breakwaters and dinking out the little fish. I mean, I've been species fishing for 30 years, and I'm still building up my species count, all told. And it's great fun, and it really does make you think. What species fishing does for you as well, a lot of people forget this, but it teaches you about the ecology of the sea about the actual structure of how things work. That little shanty that's like three inches long is just as important as the blue sharks and the poor beagles. They're all part of that ecosystem. An angler is one of the few people that actually is aware of how that ecosystem works because if he is an all-rounder, he tends to catch all the different fish. It teaches you what ground they're on, what they feed, how something will come in, you're just playing a shanty, and how something will come in and eat the shanty. That's what fishing does. It educates you as well. LRF then, 
Is it a fad, a trend, or the way that shore fishing is now headed? Is LRF a fad? I don't think it's a fad. I personally think it's going to be here to stay. I think, well, it already is. I think it's going to transfer offshore. I think people will be using very, very light gear offshore for a lot of fish, including bigger fish like pollock and bass and stuff like that. I think LRF fishing is here to stay. I think it might go off at a tangent. I'm probably not going to say how at the moment because that's where my, my next rods might have to have to be looked at, my next product rods. But um, I do think that LRF fishing is a sign of what's to come. I think we will continue at the moment to go lighter and lighter and lighter. Sad, really, because it looks like we've seen the best of it. Though, fortunately for us, we're of a generation that actually got a good slice of that. Be nice to see it all come back, though. So what, in your opinion, now needs to be done? Is it amendments to the EU generally, the common fisheries policy specifically, or even giving UKIP a try? How do we put things right, fish-wise? <sighs> even with my interest in fishing over the last 50-odd years, I... I haven't got an answer. I, I think I've, I've given you part of the answer. I think, you know, we have to look after fish stocks better. That's not just commercial guys. It's rod and line sports fishermen as well. You know, sport fishing has come an awful long way. I remember 30 years ago, it was a regular sight to see black bin bags full of fish. I personally, I'm telling you how it is, on the boats I go on, I don't see that very often now. I know it still exists, but I don't see that very often. People will take two or three fish, but the majority of anglers, they won't take a lot. I think we've started to educate people as to, as to how serious fish stocks are. I'm going back to what I said before. I think we need rules put in place and guidelines put in place that still allow people, some people, it may be that jobs are lost, and I don't want to see anybody lose their jobs, but maybe we have to put rules and guidelines in place that allow commercial fishing to carry on because it's a very important industry but at the same time it needs to be better regulated that helps preserve fish stocks overall we know it's proven you don't have to argue the fact they're taking too many fish the discards are wasted fish we need to get round that we need to get it sorted out based on your long distinguished angling career with its many strands twists and turns i'd like now to ask a question regarding innovation what single development for you has had the biggest impact on sea fishing over your time? Regards a material or product having a major influence on fishing tackle in my lifetime, I probably see two actually that work side by side. I think obviously the development of modern rod materials such as carbon fibre in all its different forms, I think that has massively transformed fishing. When I was I was a young fellow, yeah, fiberglass was just coming out. The rods were heavy; they were cumbersome. You needed a, a twenty-pound tope to pull the rod tip over. They were really heavy things. Whereas now they are, to want of a better better phrase, lissom ones. They're very lightweight. They're very fast tapered. They react to bites very quickly. You get maximum sport and feel through the blank into your hands. I think going hand in hand with that, I also think the development of braid lines has been a, a major change. It's improved bite detection no end. It's opened up boat fishing in far more forms than we had 20 years ago, 25 years ago. For me, those two would be the, the major influences that I've seen. Just for the record, I singled out uptide fishing. 
Not so much for its contribution to catches in very shallow water, but for the way it steered boat fishing along the lighter, more sporting route. <laughs> I also singled out Brady lines, by the way, though while I recognise the good points, I personally don't like them and will only use them where I must. Having made reference to braided lines, uh, I use them when I know they will give me an advantage, which is usually when I'm um, drift fishing from a boat because I want total contact with the seabed. I want to maximise by bite detection. I also want to minimise the amount of lead weight that I use in the tide. I also use them occasionally for some shore fishing, mainly for plug fishing. Also, if I'm fishing at very close range for bass, because I get instant notification of a pickup. But I remember when Braid first came out, one of the things in the magazines was that this was going to replace mono. I think those of us that understood monofilament and understood Braid, and consequently also understood fluorocarbon, I think we realised straight away that it was never going to replace monofilament. Monofilament still has a great place in fishing, and I believe, although it's been modified all the time, and I can reveal not very much, but there will be changes to monofilament in the coming years which will be quite staggering, which will give us even more of an edge. And I see braid and monofilament and fluorocarbon working side by side with each other. Finally, let's go back to World Sea Fishing, which carries an article by you entitled Of Ghosts and Greats, in which you reflect on and discuss the part played by modern sea angling's true pioneers. Could you elaborate a little bit more for us on that one here? When you talk about some of the greats of, of sea angling, I think you have to include Clive Gammon. I was very fortunate. I fished with Clive once down at Swansea. It was an awful day. The weather was terrible. And bless Clive, he, he was the only one that caught a bass, which was quite fitting. I was very lucky that when I went to live in Australia, as I said at the time, I was reading uh, Angling Magazine, which was edited by Brian Harris, I remember dropping Brian Harris a, a letter. He was a, an excellent guy, and he, he replied to me and put me in contact with a guy called Ron Calcutt in West Australia, who equally helped me tremendously. And I think that's the measure of these people, the Ian Gillespie's, the John Darlings, and many, many more. They were always willing to help people, and that came across in their writing, which is what I alluded to when I was talking about my own writing. It was them that really put that seed in me, that... It's important that you write what you're interested in, you write what you want to write, but equally you do it with the intention of trying to help people, to help them catch more fish. I have to be honest, I owe those guys a tremendous amount because it was often sat at home, wagging off school, reading magazines, articles that they'd written that put that information in my head that 15, 20 years later started to flow out. And it also gave me the ability to think on my own two feet. I would think what they did and, and how they fish for things. And I can give a better example for that. When I was bass fishing, I'd read and read and read and read previously pretty much everything that John Darling wrote. And I found that I experienced exactly what he experienced. And I think that also is something that people should remember. Some people think that when people write a feature, they write an article, that they just make it up. That's for the majority of people that I know that write, that is not true. John Darling was a prime example. He wrote what he experienced. And when I followed him, I found his experiences I experienced equally the same. And I think it's having that ability to pass on that information that we that are writing at the moment need to do 
because that's where the future of fishing is. It's passing that information on to people who are going to come after us. From my own experience of many of these people, what struck me was their wonderful writing style. They seemed to write with a brush rather than a pen, and as such, painted a wonderful picture. This would draw you into the point where you actually felt like you were stood beside them when they fished, unlike today's offerings of facts, 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 which reads more like a shopping list offering the reader everything on a plate. Everything, that is, except for the experience of being temporarily transported away from whatever humdrum location you sat in while you're reading the article. That, to me, is yet another skill now sadly lost. One of the things that the great writers of the past, the John Darlings and particularly Gammon, I mean, Gammon was the master, was to not just write a, a feature, but actually write a story, something that gripped you, something that made you feel that you'd got the wind in your face, the surf spray hitting you, the pull of the cod in the surf. That's what it was all about. People criticise now that those stories aren't there. I think over the last 20, 25 years, I think with great respect, I don't think there's been the right people in the writing industry to really encourage that type of writing. I'm not saying it's not there. It is. But it's on a much, much lower scale. I think it's coming back. I know that um, in Sea Fishing Magazine, the new Sea Fishing Magazine, which is out now, we're trying to bring some of that back. We're trying to write some more entertaining stories about fishing. I don't think it's gone. I think it will come back. But there is a great hunger now for technical information. People want to catch fish. I think probably that stems from 30 years ago, it wasn't that difficult to go out and catch a good bass. I think now it is. And I think that's why technical writing has become, for many, very important. And what these articles also demonstrate is a quality of fishing which we've unfortunately seen seriously eroded by the passing of time. I'm not sure how to interpret that question. The way I see it is this, is that there are still some great fish to be caught. I think what's changed, and I see it in my own fishing, I have to work one heck of a lot harder than I used to 10, 20, 30 years ago. You really have to put some time and effort in. And this is where I get back. This is one of the reasons why I call my bass book Bass Strategy and Confidence. That's exactly what it's about. You have to have a strategy. And from that strategy comes a confidence that you know exactly where you want to be, how you're going to fish, and what you're going to catch. And I think that's what we, a lot of people now who do pretty well, that's what they're working to. I think the days of just going out and chucking a bait out and hoping that something's going to grab it, that makes life a lot, lot harder. There's nothing wrong with going fishing just for fun. I totally and utterly 100% encourage that. It's not all about catching fish, but a lot of people do want to catch fish. And that's what you have to do. You have to put a lot more work in than we used to. And out of all those names, many of whom are sadly no longer with us, which one made the greatest impact on your fishing? I would probably have to say... John Darling. He was probably, alongside Ian Gillespie, one of the first real technical writers. He analysed his fishing. He knew that he would go down to a certain mark on Beachy Head, and if he would get a bass bite 10 minutes after low water in a certain gully, and he knew if he caught that fish or missed it, he needed to move to another gully, and 20 minutes later he got a chance of one fish in that gully again. 
That was the type of technical ability that man had. And that's what I learned. The, the need to really understand the quarry that you're trying to catch. And that's what I've tried to apply to every single species I've ever targeted. I think probably, without doubt, I'll rephrase that, without doubt, John Darlin has probably had the biggest influence on my fishing career. But with due respect and thanks given to the likes of Gammon and Harris and Gillespie and many, many more. Sadly, if he was still with us, JD's technical thinking and undoubted watercraft would bear far less fruit these days, which on the one hand you could argue makes that kind of knowledge and application even more important, while on the other less so, because on many occasions you'd be fishing empty water. What I also think is a great loss here are the characters, which for those who don't know, John Darling was most certainly one. As you've already said, they probably do still exist, but often unfortunately have that side of the personality surgically removed during the editing phase. Great days though, and great to remind ourselves of those people and times. My thanks then to Mike Thrustle for taking us back through those years, while at the same time also throwing in a few teasers here and there with regard to what the future might also bring. 